Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, February 5th, 2024. We're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. Ahoy hoy, Katrina. I'm Guy Hero. Today we are talking about... <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that one. No, ahoy-eye is what we're talking about. Coragonis hoy-eye, the bloater. And we have two excellent guests with us today. We've got Brian Weidel. He's joining us from New York, where he's a research fishery biologist with the U.S. Geological Survey Great Lakes Science Center. And Dmitry Gorski is a fish biologist with our Lower Great Lakes Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office, also in New York. So welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's great to be here. We're happy that, to talk about a species that has one of the more unfortunate common names, but it's a really neat species once you get into it. I've fallen in love with these deep water fish that most people don't get to see and bring them up on the lakes, show them to people, pictures of these species. It's just really impressive to see the light bulb moments that go off when folks understand just how much is out there and how deep it is and how different it is than what you see if you're just standing on the shoreline or looking in a stream, right? Yeah, yeah. Speaking yeah. of unfortunate names, we're going to be covering the ass fish a little bit later this okay. year. So, Something that actually yeah. beats bloater. Yeah. yeah. That, Where does it come from? Why is it called a bloater? Commercial fisheries, when they would fish for them, they're catching them from really deep water, right? And so as they're pulling them up in their nets, their air bladder expands and they come up and they're just totally bloated up. Their fins are sticking out every which way. And so they've mm. just become... Loader Chubs was another name they used back in the day. Awesome. So real basics. We're curious what a bloater looks like. They're relatively small, sort of slender, silvery fish. You can think of like a bait fish that inhabits the pelagic areas of the Great Lakes, really mostly Lake Superior, Lakes Huron, Michigan, and Ontario. And depending on how you lump or split, potentially Lake Nipigon as well. But the deeper portions, so like 100 to 300 feet of depth, very silvery. The largest sizes that they get are maybe 12 inches, right? But probably typically smaller than that. Certainly in some of the Great Lakes, they're much smaller than that. Often folks will refer to them as a prey fish because of their importance to the native fish that consume fish, the piscivorous fish, the lake trout, the salmon, and things like that in the Great Lakes. Yeah. And where do these guys sit on the family tree with other whitefish or other related species? Salmonidae is the family. And then the subfamilies are Corrigonidae or Salmonidae. I do love fish with adipose fins. That's why I like them. <laughs> yeah. That's, they're related to lake whitefish, round whitefish, and fish that are referred to as the ciscos, right? And so this is considered a deep water cisco. Awesome. So these guys are occupying their own niche, which is deeper water. What are some of the other species historically that you might have found in those other niches around these fish? There's a bunch of different deep water ciscos. They've they diversified in these deep water habitats, filling these really unique niches that uh, somewhat overlap, but really are pretty well differentiated. There's a species of deep water cisco called Kai. There's this one, the bloater, 
There's Lackfin Cisco. Yep. Deep water Cisco, short nose Cisco. Short and then nose. you start getting into the short jaw Cisco. <laughs> and in Lake uh, Superior, that's where a lot of these forms were based originally. And still, a lot of these forms remain. And some of the important science and conservation work that's being done now is just figuring out what's there and using historical anecdotes or descriptions from fishermen. We've got some great researchers digging through just local libraries and pulling up newspaper stuff to really try to understand more about the history of species that we're not sure if they're still there or not. Some folks that work in genetics have done a really great job of using museum specimens to see that there actually might be a few more of these species. Some of the species we thought may have gone extinct, might actually still be out there, but we just have a hard time telling them apart. They're all sort of silvery fish. Yeah. I imagine with historical records, teasing that out would be difficult. And these are big, like, yeah, actually studying them seems like it'd be challenging as well, especially if they're lower numbers than they were historically. Oh, yes. Much, much lower. So they used to be just about in every port. I'm curious if we can dig in a little bit more into how all these different deep water Cisco's differentiate from each other. What unique niches are each of these ones fulfilling? This is super nerdy, I think. Like I'm going to totally go for it on this, but <laughs> I think it's amazing how plastic this group of species are, right? They've diversified in a relatively short time since the last glacier 10,000 years ago, right? Uh, where they recolonized the Great Lakes and Theoretically, they had an ancestral form, and then they diversified from there. And you're talking about over six different species in that time frame. I think depth played a big part in it, right? Mm -hmm. So you have shallow forms of Cisco, and then you have uh, a variety of deeper ones. I struggle to think about what caused the deep ones to really segregate as much as they have. The shallow to the deep one seems to make sense. In the deep offshore areas, you've got a a few different varieties. I'd like to think that it's because the Great Lakes are so big, you have different areas that they can adapt to. You have a lot of embayment type areas that are bigger than most inland lakes, right? You've got some unique environments that play into that and a variety of food for them to eat. The key piece is depth, right? And when people refer to as deep water, I often laugh and ask, which deep water do you mean? Mm-hmm. Lake Ontario in and of itself, even the smallest lake, has 800 feet of water out there. You know, the Kayai, which is another one that's probably the one that's closest to the bloater, that's Corygonus Kayai. Those were historically in Lake Ontario, and they were thought to be even deeper. So the bloater mate was the intermediate depth one. And so you really have to uh, try to use actual depth ranges to talk about which species were where, because that's how they've been segregating out. Yeah. At that intermediate depth, what are the bloater eating? And then what is eating them both historically and today? What's eating them is the easy one. Lake trout historically and today, they're, they're one of the primary predators of them. Just talked about lake trout last week with Larry Miller. So check that one out if you want more info on, yeah, on the lake trout. Yeah, and so what they eat, I know they go after mices. Mices is like a a small shrimp. I was going to ask you if mices were those little rodents that keep eating my pasta, but you (laughs) clarified. (laughs) 
yeah, definitely not. That's one of the species that they probably co-evolved with. Mysis are these glacial relic species. These are species that were first in to these systems after the glaciers receded. And mysis can do a whole lot of different behaviors. They're known for migrating from the bottom of the lake in hundreds of feet up to the surface every night. And some mm. of these species like bloater also evolved some of those um, vertical migrating behaviors. Others stay down on the bottom and feed on the, the mysis that stay on the lake bottom. So mysis were incredibly important. They form a, a large basis of their prey base, but they also likely probably helped with some of the speciation. Yeah. No, that's cool. And while we're wrapping up this topic about how they speciate and their behaviors and stuff, how do they reproduce? Do they reproduce in these bands of water where they're found or do they migrate inland to structure or, or how are they going about that? That's one of the more difficult questions. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. For most of these fishes in the genus Quarigonus, they spawn when everybody's putting their boats away for the wind. late November, December, in the case of bloater, probably into January or February. So we actually have incredibly little information relative to things like rainbow trout or northern pike or smallmouth bass and what we know about how they spawn that things we can observe much more easily. And that's what our research groups, Dimitri and I and other colleagues have been working on trying to go figure out exactly what those spawning habitats are in their native ranges where they're still reproducing successfully so that for the places where we'd like to restore them, we can double check that they can actually uh, conduct their whole life cycle. Yeah. Completely. We really have a lot of unknowns, but we do believe that they spawn at depth, right? So these areas oh, right. where they do live their life, we believe they prefer much deeper habitats for spawning. You know, as we, we kind of understand what's out there in terms of what we know about the biology, I know things have changed a lot in the Great Lakes. The, you know, we have alewives now, we have introduced species, we've got invasive species, we've had commercial fisheries. What has affected these fish over time and where are we at today? All the Great Lakes have lost some of the diversity in these species. Lakes like Lake Superior have retained a higher proportion. Lake Erie and Lake Ontario really have lost a lot of their species. And so in Lake Ontario, we do have bloater back in the lake, but that's only because of a collaborative restoration effort where it's really an international effort of just dozens of different agencies and offices to figure out how to collect the fish out of Lake Michigan rear the fish in both U.S. and Canadian hatcheries, right? These aren't species that there's manuals written on. Everybody yeah. working on this has to invent it as they go. And then they've been reintroduced into Lake Ontario. That population yeah. is one that was extirpated, thought to be, we caught the last one in the 80s, but they were very rare even before that. And now yeah. we catch them not often, but one or two or three every year. Yeah. What was the commercial fishery like for these fish and some of the other white fishes or ciscos? The commercial fisheries, um, we like to think about it, it was the, the commercial fishers collect the fish that are easiest first, right? Yep. So the shallower fish, the bigger fish first, 
And as those were either overfished or habitat was causing issues with their reproduction, the fisheries moved deeper. Bloater were still around in the night in Lake Ontario in the sort of late 1940s and 1950s, but they were greatly reduced. And at that time, they were even thinking about uh, allowing the fishers to use smaller size nets to catch them because the fish were so small. But then the next thing, the fish aren't there anymore. You mentioned some of the issues overfishing non-native species, but also habitat change. That's one where we see a lot of that, especially if you work in Lakes Ontario or Erie. They're quite different than what they look like in the the pre-European time period. Yeah, I know this is like deep water. You can't imagine that we've had any impact on this habitat, but uh, the silt and sedimentation that happened from deforesting were more than a hundred years ago that deforested our landscape. We were putting a lot of phosphorus and nitrogen into the water for a hundred years. And all of that stuff ends up turning into sediment and it has to go somewhere. And sometimes it's near shore, sometimes it's deep down. I think we've definitely impacted the habitat quite a bit with that. Another possible impediment is alewife being in the system. There's a lot of people that think they compete and compete for resources. Alewife have been shown to change the food web quite a bit. Are these fish a better food source than alewives for native fish? Yeah. So in your lake trout podcast, you spoke about lake trout and other species have an issue with eating alewife (laughs) <laughs> it's not good for them, right? It, right. Yeah. So the lake trout and other fish that eat alewife, it's not good for them. They get a lot of thiaminase in their system, which breaks down the thiamine, and they have reproductive failure. And so providing an alternative prey species for lake trout is really the main reason why we're investing so much in these bloater. Along, long, everybody. Time for a minute with Maria, with me, Maria, calling in from Chogyang Lands in Dillingham. I just want to give a big, huge kagasakung to our guests, Brian and Dimitri, for coming and chatting with us about this wonderful fish, the bloater. I think it's really marvelous how this fish continues to swim on despite all of the roadblocks in its way. I think it's really fascinating how the reproduction of the bloater is relatively a mystery. So big, huge kagasakung to everyone that has boots on the ground in this area and is making observations about the bloater so that this fish continue to thrive and not just survive. I had no idea that it was cousins to the beloved salmon that are so important to us here in Alaska. The bloater is a really important fish to the indigenous cultures over in the Midwest, spanning up to Canada and to the East Coast. So I hope that we can take care of this fish. So thank you for everyone's conservation efforts and making sure that this fish has a life of longevity in that area. I look forward to learning more about this bloater. Thanks, all. Dimitri, can you tell us a little bit more about the Lower Great Lakes Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office? And then same question to you, Brian, with the Great Lakes Science Center. Yes, at the Lower Great Lakes Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office, we work with partners to manage the fisheries of the lower lakes, so Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. Um, We're primarily working on native species restoration. Uh, We have a a group that does invasive species uh, detection and monitoring, and then we have a group that 
specializes in habitat restoration. I think the best part about working at my office is the collaboration that I've been able to have with the other agencies around the lakes. I get to work with the Canadian agencies and the state agencies. It's really a great experience on both lakes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So our office, USGS Great Lakes Science Center is based in Oswego, New York, right on the southern shore of Lake Ontario. And then there's offices like mine in all the Great Lakes. So up in Ashland, Wisconsin, a Lake Superior, or there's a vessel base in Sheboygan, uh, Michigan. The Great Lakes Science Center has these vessel bases all around and, and field stations to keep up a fleet of large research vessels, 70 foot to even up to 130 foot vessels. And these basically have a primary science mission in the Great Lakes. So assessing the status of prey fish, assessing the status of native species like lake trout or bloater or, or other um, Coriagona species. And so that was a big portion of what my office was here for and always did. But as we've recognized the information that we need for restoring these species, a lot of it has to do with embayments or nearshore areas. We've diversified our science to not just include our large vessel work and work with partners, including Dimitri's office, the state, as he mentioned, Ontario, as well as tribes throughout the Great Lakes to better take our big boat time series and surveys and help us understand why those fish populations have reacted the way they have. So what all agencies, you mentioned it was an international effort and, you know, considering these big lakes are on the border of the U.S. and Canada, that makes sense. But what all agencies, both governmental and non-governmental, have been involved in the recovery or the attempted recovery? It started on Lake Ontario with the Lake Ontario Lake Committee, which is chaired by Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources and New York Department of Environmental Conservation. Those are the two provincial and state leads for this committee. And based on advice from their technical committee, they decided that it was time to pursue reintroduction of these bloater. They reached out all different partners for help from there. They went to Green Bay, Wisconsin, mm -hmm. to fi find commercial fishers who knew where to get sexually mature bloater, which was maybe two guys at the time, right? And only one of them was crazy enough to go out at the right time to get them. So they're like ice breaking out to the middle of Lake Michigan and fishing, wow. I don't know, 400 feet down, they're trawling and they're pulling up these sexually mature bloater. We've got hatchery staff from the Fish Wildlife Service on board. They're stripping these eggs right on the deck when all different types of waves and weather and then those eggs have to get back to get disease checked and all sorts of things. So long story short, it's a lot to this, but eventually you've got hatcheries in the Ontario department. You've got hatcheries in fish and wildlife. You have experimental tech centers in USGS and in fish and wildlife service that are working on techniques to rear these fish. Yeah. You've got field offices like my offices looking into survival of the fish once they're in the lake. Then you've got Weidel's office, who's looking at assessment using big boats and trawls. The state's got a big boat program. There's so many. I'm sure I forgot somebody along the way. The Great Lakes Fish Commission has been very supportive and helping facilitate 
these groups and these efforts takes quite a bit, right? To get these eggs moved around, do you mail them? Do you drive them? Folks have tried just about as many different things as you can come up with. They've tried and and we're just now getting to the point where figuring out what works. The folks up in White Lake, Ontario have been the most successful at culturing these species, but they're delicate. They don't like to be transported. And so how long we keep them and how we get them back to the lake can really influence their survival once we put them back in. So a lot of good work, a lot of good teamwork, a lot of investment. Why is it important to recover this fish and these native fishes? Yeah, part of the lake committee's fish community objectives is to have a diverse prey base. And right now, when you look at the prey base, a a large majority of the biomass is just alewife. So it's not very diverse. We have little pieces of other prey fish around, but upwards of 90% of the prey base is alewife. And so our mission is to diversify that so that if we have any catastrophic issues or if alewife disappear, there's something still in the food web to take its place. Right on. So I'm curious on the technical side of things, how you guys actually go about evaluating the success of these programs. How do you know if there's more fish out there year to year? How do you know if they're reproducing and recruiting into the adult class? One of the primary sources of tracking the restoration's success or status comes from the bottom trawl surveys that have been established and being done in most of the lakes since the 70s. And so Luckily, even in Lake Ontario, where we didn't have a lot of bloater once the surveys got started, we can mirror what the folks have done in the upper lakes to understand surveys when and where and how they catch them. And so these surveys, for instance, uh, we do one in both April and October, and they'll have somewhere around 250 bottom trawls that extend everywhere out from 250 meters, the deepest point we can trawl up to about five meters. Um, And those trawls where we're dragging a net along the bottom have produced to date, I want to say, I think our numbers are 14 total. So in some years it's one or two, and in some other years we've had none. But Mm -hmm. those are, those surveys, because they're the most widespread and conducted by all the the agencies are our best look at knowing what's happening on a whole lake scale. And what's interesting is we tend to catch the most on the southern shore in the U.S. waters. But the problem with that is if we were to trawl at those depths on the north shore in the Canadian waters, that's where things get really rocky. And so Mm -hmm. we don't run our trawls over there. So we're not sure if it's fish in the U.S. waters because that's where they want to live or if we just can't sample them as well. Yeah, exactly. In the other location. And Dimitri's crew works a lot with acoustic telemetry, and that gives us a lot different kinds of information about these fish's behavior. Dimitri, what kind of tags are you using in terms of like how big they are and what do the tags tell you? How do you track them? Yeah, so we use acoustic telemetry and the tags come in many different sizes. It's really dependent on the battery you stick in there, and then the lifespan of that tag depends on that battery. So yeah, when we're talking about some of the work that I've been doing with Bloater, we're trying to get really small tags and really small fish. And so 
these tags are about the size of a mid-sized vitamin, not the big, huge ones. <laughs> but we're putting those in fish that are only like 15 grams, which I looked up what what is like a common thing that weighs 15 grams, and it's three grapes. That's how big oh, these are. Oh, wow. Yeah. So these are like... I can really... barely take those vitamins, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So these are like really small fish, and they're getting a pretty big tag for their size. Once they're in a fish, they emit a signal, and that signal is unique to that tag. So we have an ID for that fish, for that tag. We have an array of receivers out there that are just sitting on the bottom of the lake listening for a fish to go by, like a toll booth system, like an easy pass mm -hmm. system, right? Mm -hmm. And when they go by, the receiver logs the date and time and the unique ID of that tag, and we know we can learn a lot from multiple detections of these fish throughout the array. Can you tell how deep they're going or anything like that? Yeah, so you can add a lot of different sensors. And so you could do temperature, you can do depth. The one that we're using is actually a predator sensor. So it has a little film on it that once it gets eaten, it'll get digested and send out a new signal. And that's how we know that it's been eaten. The challenge is every time you add one of these sensors, the tag gets bigger, right? So we're limited again by size. And so my crew has been working on evaluating the success of stocking fish, right? Because immediately after you stock fish is one of the hardest periods of time for that fish, right? They're getting put from a hatchery into a complete new environment. They're stressed from transporting. They're getting thrown right on top of a bunch of predators that they've never seen before. And so... Not getting fed either. Yeah, exactly. And not getting fed, right? So the first couple of days, couple of weeks are really tough for a stocked fish. And so we're trying to evaluate how well we're doing with our stocking techniques and transport techniques to improve survival. Like Brian mentioned, 14 fish in the last few years. That's not very good considering we've put in over a million fish. So that's one of the pieces of work that I'm working on is looking at their survival with these tags. How many tags have been eaten? 20% of the tags get eaten. But then okay. we also have a bunch of fish that had mortality just because of stress-related mortality. And that was also another 20%. And then okay. another 20% were possibly eaten by birds. And in our first year of studying mm -hmm. these fish, we, we estimate in the first two days, 60% mortality of these stocked fish. Yeah. And they are a prey fish, though. So some of that's to be expected, I would guess. Yes. Yeah. How long do the batteries last? I know my recorder batteries just died and I hadn't even like played it yet. So how long are we talking? <laughs> 60 days. Okay. It's one of the biggest arrays for this kind of study. We had like 100 receiver locations out there. So we covered a huge area. We really had a good shot at evaluating these stocking practices. We've done it for two years. The data I shared with you is from the first year. But... I think the biggest thing that we've learned is that we have a lot of things still to learn about how to stock these fish, how to handle these fish and transport them. This is not our typical salmon stocking program. You're definitely not dropping these fish from a helicopter into the <laughs> lake, right? This is going to take a lot of trial and error and possibly doing things differently than we've done for yeah. 50 years. 
we tried recently this past year in a collaboration with Dimitri and his group to try to environmentally condition the fish, right? Mm -hmm. Do more of like a soft release, taking lessons from both wildlife releases as well as different salmonid stocking or trout using net pens where the fish can acclimate a little bit. And we were amazed. We did it a couple different ways. And in these environments, in the net pen environment, we still lost approximately 50% of the fish Oh wow! over those first three days. So we tend to think of, we want to come up with these neat ecological mechanisms and it's this predation and that predation, or it could just be that these fish are so stressed moving into these mm -hmm. systems. It's so much of a change that we're really losing a lot of our investment right off the bat. And those are some of the questions we want to try to investigate with tags, with tanks, with nets, things like that. Well, it seems hard to try to simulate where they're supposed to be in these deep water fish. Just simulating the kind of pressure in the environment just seems like an extreme challenge. You put it perfectly, right? How do you simulate 400 feet down? Some folks are trying to work on that with pressure chambers and they're oh, wow. seeing some neat results. But again, you can only make so big of a pressure chamber, right? And so these are just some of the challenges that come with studying and reintroducing these fish. What would you tell a taxpayer? So you both public agencies, Fish and Wildlife Service, USGS, this is a, a big investment. Can you just talk a little bit about restoration of a species like this recovery and just the amount of time it takes and why it's important to stay on board with that time frame? That's okay. a tough one. That's not yeah. an easy question because this is a very experimental effort. There's intrinsic value in restoring native species back into the habitat that we as humans extirpated them from, but there's also certainly consumptive potential. If you can get these species back in a sustainable way, they could be potentially fished. They are still fished in Lakes Michigan and uh, Lake Superior. When you have empty niches in a lake, you're more likely to be invaded by non-native species. If everything goes right, there's the potential that this could be of fished species, either commercially or recreationally here in Lake Ontario. But I think more importantly is the idea of diversity in the prey fish that supports the predators that, that the public tends to be more focused on. And so whether they're the native predators, lake trout, or the introduced predators, Chinook salmon, a diverse prey fish assemblage is going to help all of those sport fishes. I think we've said it a few times, we want a diverse prey base for native fish and for game fish. Yeah. Understanding some of these fish takes a very long time. So just something to be aware of. Recovery doesn't happen instantly. I'm curious. So when you guys were budding fishery scientists, did you always picture yourself working with bloater? No, I don't think that was ever on the top of my species list. I sometimes tell people that I don't want to study anything that doesn't fit in a gill net. And these guys just barely <laughs> cross that line. Just make the mesh smaller. Just yeah, make it smaller. I know. The thing is, though, with any species you study, you end up, or at least it's been my experience, there's always something cool that ends up going on with them that you learn. So is there any stories that stand out that, you know, people might not think the bloaters being the, the coolest fish to work with, but do you have any anecdotes? 
Yeah. Do you have any historical accounts or have you heard anything about people's recipes for these fish or how folks ate them in the past or anything like that? I have a great story of that. I spend a lot of time in the lower lakes, but I also like getting around and going learning about how things are different in the upper lakes. And I want to say we were up on the, maybe up in Houghton, up on the Keweenaw and Lake Superior, and I was going to a fish house. And that was just, we don't, they don't exist anymore in Lake Ontario. And so up there, it was just an, an amazing fish house full of locals and tourists and all different folks. And a more elderly gentleman came in from the back and, and just decided wasn't going to wait in the line. He just yelled, do you have any chubs? And, it, you mm-hmm. know, to the folks in the back, that meant smoked chubs, very likely yeah. bloater. And the lady at the counter just shook her head no to him. And he just turned around with a hand and sort of said, bah, enough, and, and went right back out the door. And so that's important to think about, right? There was an individual who, who actually knew the difference and was like, you know, he wanted that sort of oilier, fattier yeah. fish in the smoke. Yep. That yeah. was his goal. Right. And, uh, and so that was neat I, at the time. I didn't know any of this, you know, I, I watched it all happen and then I had to go Google it and understand really what was happening there with this guy. Yeah. It's that people preferred these fish over some of the others, things like Lake white fish or Lake trout and stuff like that. Yeah. You get that intergenerational amnesia going where, yeah, once you lose a fish and they're gone, you aren't going to have people connected in the same way that they used to. And that's sad. Right. So uh, nobody knew of a smoke chub here in Rochester, New York, or a sweet go New York. But at one time, they were incredibly important to the area. Tasty, it sounds like, too. I think so. And you asked about what's exciting for us. I would have to say, when we're out on our bottom trawls in late March or early April, and we're sifting through what is many totes and totes of silver fish, right? Lake Ontario's what? Over 7,000 square miles right? We haven't caught that many fish, but it's a big lake with a lot of fish in it. So when we do catch one, usually I get a picture out to folks. And what's neat is to see how quickly that picture gets around. It's fun when we get one. We're, we look harder and harder every year, but we're waiting to see that day when we start seeing a lot of them in our trawls. That would be great. It really wasn't until some folks in leadership roles in the Great Lakes Basin helped us view the big picture, right? We didn't maybe focus on the conservation effort of these species from the outset of Great Lakes restoration, right? It's really since the Clean Water Act and getting a lot of the sort of insults or the bigger insults dealt with that we could even think about these things. And now we're looking back, we're like, wow, we maybe weren't thinking about them in a full conservation standpoint. So now a lot of that work is being done right now as we speak, looking for different populations, looking for that diversity, or maybe not, right? Maybe they are all one mixed population. Exciting to have so many kind of unanswered questions. Learned a lot about bloater today. You guys are being interested in bloater. <laughs> yeah. Oh, heck yeah. I hope your listeners enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially fish like the bloater. They're super cool native fish. Yep. Thanks, guys. Thank you, appreciate guys. It. We yeah. appreciate your Thanks. efforts. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iroh. 
Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of Communications. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.